Good morning. Now let's open with a word of prayer. Once again, Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come and worship you with song and to express our love for you and our love for each other because we're a family of faith. Father, we ask now as we continue with a heart and a mind of worship that you would speak to us now through the exposition of your word. And we pray that you would indwell both the speaker and the listener with your Holy Spirit and that you would challenge the way we think Help us to think thoughts worthy of the great God who has saved us. Speak to us now, Father, and your sons and your daughter will listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I uh, moved here to Port Townsend in the late 80s, I was uh, church planting in eastern Washington, and I used to listen to this radio program uh, called Turning Point. Uh, um, Turning Point radio program is Turning Point radio ministry of uh, David Jeremiah, a pastor in Southern California. He's a Southern Baptist in Southern California. He started the radio ministry in 1982, and they say on their webpage that their mission is to deliver the unchanging Word of God to an ever-changing world. It's carried by 2,200 radio stations, so yeah, it's a big deal. At any rate, uh, a turning point is a, an intermediate point in navigation where you literally turn point. There's a place up in the San Juan Islands called Turn Island, and that's because it's on turn point where you make a turn. And it's, it goes around. The, it's uh, also in, in surveying, a turning point is a place between two known benchmarks at which you are making a turn, a change of direction. So by definition, the turning point is where you make a decisive course alteration, a, a change of, of your situation. It's a critical moment. It's a moment of decision. The passage that we're looking at today really is a turning point in our study of, in the book of Romans. But more than that, it's a turning point really in the whole Bible, in all of redemptive history. Donald Barnhouse said, I'm convinced that these verses are the most important in the Bible. And so here we are, we have reached a turning point in our study, and perhaps we are reaching a turning point in your life as well. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off last week to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Now you'll remember that so far in the last two and a half chapters, Paul has had this relentless indictment. He's using language of the court. He's indicting all men who must stand before God as their judge, and they are condemned um, before God for rejecting Him. They've, they've not lived up to the light of the knowledge that they have. Uh, they, they, they're aware of God, and yet they refuse Him. And so the point that Paul has been making is that all men must stand before God as a judge and give an account for what they have done. That includes, first of all, the immoral man, but it also includes the righteous, moral, ethical man, and then he also included the religious man. Though markedly different from one another, um, they each stand equally distant from God, and therefore they are not doing what God requires, and consequently all men, when they stand in this place of judgment, are going to be without excuse and without escape. And that has left us feeling the, the burden. We want some relief from this ongoing, relentless indictment that, that Paul has been presenting to us. And so here's the paradox that we have as, as Christians. 
How can God, who is holy and just, how can he let people like us who are not holy, who are sinners, who are not just, who are rightly condemned before him, how can he permit us to come into his presence and not violate his holiness? How can he remain just as a, as a judge and let you into his presence? How is it moral or ethical for a just God just to forgive sin and not require punishment? It's true that God hates sin, and, and if God is just, he has to deal with the problem of sin. He has to punish sin. If we are sinners, and I hope by now that there's ample proof that we are, if we are sinners, then we deserve to be separated from God, not just for a while. We deserve His everlasting condemnation. And yet, the whole message of the gospel is that God is a God of love, and He welcomes us with these loving arms. How can it be this just, holy God loves and welcomes sinners? That's the paradox of Christianity. Now, as we've seen, Paul has been uh, maintaining this relentless, sustained indictment about all men who are radically corrupt. And he has been using different techniques to prove his point. Where we were last week, I told you he was using a, a Hebrew teaching technique called charas, which is the, literally means the stringing of pearls. But uh, Hebrew rabbis would use this linking uh, Old Testament passages together to prove a point. And so in this linking together, Paul proves that uh, man has this, this terrible character. Um, he, is, uh, he, he has terrible conduct, and the reason for this, this conduct and character, the cause for that is our depravity. And he, he includes all men. Um, back to verse 10. Here's his description of all men's character. No one is righteous. Well, is there an exception? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does what is good. Not even one. And then he tells us the reason for that. Uh, in verse, well, he's, he's quoting actually from Psalms 36. The reason for that is that there is no fear of God in their eyes. The reason that they behave like that is they don't consider their condition before God. Their condition is all of us that we are radically corrupt because of sin. And it is like the Russian poet uh, Tregenev said, I, I don't know the condition of uh, of a wicked man's heart, but I know the condition of a good man's heart, and it's terrible. And we all can say amen, because that's true of every one of us is too. All of mankind, without exception, is under this dynamic of radical sin, and that presents a dilemma both for us as sinners who want to be right with God and don't want to spend eternity in hell, and it represents a dilemma for God too. How can he remain holy and just and deal with the problem of sin and let us come into his presence. How can God declare us to be righteous until we are righteous? This, of course, was the whole crux of the Reformation when the Catholic Church says God cannot declare someone righteous until they are righteous. And then the Protestants said God declares us righteous for a different reason, and that's the point that we're getting at today. It's a great dilemma. 
And that's why we have come to this, this turning point in redemptive history and in the book of Romans because now for the first time we hear about the righteousness of God, which is God's totally sufficient answer to man's total failure. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So verse 21 starts out with a, a, a remarkable, uh, in, uh, in light, shocking t term right here. He says, but now. Here's that turning point right there, but now. This is the dividing point. This is the watershed in the gospel, the watershed in these great themes of Romans. Then we were objects of God's wrath, all without exception. Then we were declared guilty, worthy of condemnation, dead in our sins, condemned, standing rightly condemned before a holy, just God. But now things are different. But now we are declared to be righteous, alive in Christ. We are justified before a loving Father. How does this come about? How did this happen? Well, if God hadn't done this, our present condition would be very bleak, as we've already discussed in the last two and a half chapters in, in Romans, but particularly in verse 18 of, uh, of chapter 1. And then Paul reiterates that in Ephesians 2, 12-ish. You know, where he says, we are without hope and without God in, in the world. But Paul says, but now things are different. Now everything has changed. But now, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the wickedness of men. Now we come to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God is being manifested, being revealed. Now we come to this time of, of salvation, but now the fulfillment, fulfillment of the promise, now it's realization, but now, not later, not, not yet to come, now we receive this righteousness of God. It's remarkable. Well, what specifically has changed in between the two verses? I mean, how are things so different now? Paul uses this word now, and he suggests, but now, righteousness from God. The wrath of God was revealed, now the righteousness of God is revealed. Before, we are objects of God's wrath, his righteous indignation, but now we are objects of God's love, his, his compassion, his mercy. If we don't understand that apart from Jesus Christ, we are under God's wrath and we are destined for eternal judgment, we can hardly then begin to appreciate the but now of the righteousness that comes through God's atoning work through Jesus Christ on the cross. We have to understand our desperate situation, how dark our situation was as rightfully objects of God's wrath to really grasp what grace is all about. The people in our day generally think that they're 
pretty much on good terms with God. And if they're not, God will get over it. It's just because God's a little out of sorts, a bit peevish. But because it's God's nature to love and forgive, he'll get over it. See, that's, that's not the case. We have been building a case for two and a half chapters about how we all have rejected God. We all have suppressed the truth. We all know what God expects, and we aren't doing it. God is consequently already in the process of revealing his wrath. He's turning us over to the, the character that we really are. And then you go back to Romans 1.29, where he begins to tell us that we, are, we, we're, we have every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. We're full of, of, of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways to do evil. We're, we're disobedient to parents. We're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the description of each one of us apart from the grace of God. You have to come to that understanding to, under, to begin to understand that you are objects rightfully of God's wrath in order to begin to understand that you have become the objects of his, his love and mercy. But now... This righteousness of God has, has been revealed. This, this one way of salvation, this one way to escape God's wrath. And thank God that there is this one way. Verse 22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to, us, to it, uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, so, so far... I've been making the claim that this but now is something radically new, historically significant because it's unlike anything in the past. And there is a sense when that's true, um, but there's also a sense in which it's not new at all because it's always been the way of, of grace. Throughout all of redemptive history, that's the way it's always been. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 when he said, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but is now being revealed through the appearing of our Savior. So when Paul says in verse 21, this is new, but now it's not the wrath thing. Now it's the righteousness of God. It's new, but he says, but it was always revealed in the law and the prophets, which testify about them. So the point is that there is this perfect saving righteousness of God, which is not received by any other means except by God's grace, which has been received by faith. And it's, that's always been the case. No one has ever been saved in any other manner but by faith in, in God. So it's, it's a righteousness that, that is new in the sense that, that before we were under the, the, the condemnation of the law, but it is not new in the sense that it, that's always been the case. It's been revealed to us in the prophets. It's his righteousness revealed to us. And it's a righteousness, he says, which is from God, not a righteousness that we attain to. Remember when we were talking about the, uh, the, the parable of the wedding banquet back in Matthew 22 and... Um, the, the invitation goes out to all of the worthy guests, and they kind of disregard the guests. And so the, the king says, go out and invite the unworthy people. Invite all the dirtbags out in the marketplace, people out on the street. Ask them to come in. Remember this story? And so they all come in, and the king provides them with robes of righteousness that he himself provides. 
one guy is there. He doesn't need the king's robe of righteousness because he's a pretty good guy on his own. He thinks his robes are pretty acceptable the way they are. The king comes out and finds this man not in the robe of righteousness that he provides, but the robe the man himself provides and what happens to the man. The king says, throw him out, out to the place of, of bitterness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, there's no other righteousness which is acceptable to God except his righteousness, and that's the point of that parable, and that's what Paul is revealing to us here. But now the righteousness that we so desperately need is a righteousness which God himself provides for us. Now, that's very stunning when you realize that the righteousness which God requires is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is what Luther called the justia alienum, the, the, uh, an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness which is extranos. It is not of ourselves. It's from the outside. So when we talk about an alien righteousness, of course, we're not talking about little green men and spaceships, but we're talking about Christ's righteousness, which is extranos, not ours, other than ours. An alien righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ, which is now provided for this. Then Paul goes on to speak that this righteousness that God is providing, his righteousness, is, is a righteousness that comes apart from the law. Well, if the law was able to save us, we would be saved by observing the law. But two problems. One, we don't observe the law, any of us. And two, the law was not meant to save us. The law was meant to, one, point to how terrible our, our disposition is, how desperate our position is, and how it points to a time when God would, by grace and not by works, provide salvation. Verse 23, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think when people hear that, they normally think that this is one problem stated in two ways. Everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But really, Paul is making two independent indictments here, two different problems. The first problem is sin. That's an ethical problem that we have all violated God's law. We've transgressed his standards. But the second problem is that we have fallen short of glory. The first one, sin, is an ethical problem. The second one, falling short of glory, is an ontological problem. And that is where we, um, it, it's more about our own, our, our own character, our, our way of life, that we fall short of producing the glory that the Lord requires of us, his glory. Of course, from our perspective, uh, we are very different. We are very different people in how righteous or, or how, uh, how sinful we are, how far short of his glory we have fallen. We, we have various different degrees of righteousness. We get that. And we can look around and we can see that some of us are far more righteous than others, like the two Johnson boys that I mentioned, you know, Lawrence and Terry. Um, one of these guys will admit that he's a twin. The other one doesn't admit that. <laughs> but they're very different from one another. So, we, you know, we recognize that there's vastly different in righteousness. There's a gold mine in South Africa, the, uh, I can't quite see the name of it, Pamonig. It's two and a half miles deep. It's the deepest mine in the world. And they've also found another gold reef that's a little deeper and off to the side. So it's two and a half mile shaft that goes down. 
Now suppose there's a guy at the bottom of that shaft named Terry Johnson, and he's looking up <laughs> the shaft up at the sky. And there's another guy named, I don't know, Lawrence Johnson, who's at the top of, who's at the top of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet. So one guy is two and a half miles below ground, the other guy is five and a half miles above ground. Obviously, they're eight miles different in elevation, right? One of them is way higher than the other. One of them is far more righteous than the other. But the, what they need to go to is the stars. And the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, is... Uh, no, I know the answer to this. 5.9 5 trillion miles. So one of them is eight miles higher than the other, but they both need to get 5.8 trillion miles. So the, I'm just, it's a, you know, the metaphor breaks down pretty quickly, doesn't it? The point is, <laughs> the point is from our perspective, yes, it's obvious some people are way nicer than others. Some people are way more righteous than others. Some people have a positive merit of five and a half miles. Some of them are, are so derelict that they're two and a half miles below the ground. But, but all of us are infinitely short of the righteousness which God requires. It's a stupid thing to compare ourselves to one another when the distance is infinite. Verse 24, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. Anybody using the RSV here? Because the RSV does not use the word propitiation. They deemed it too complicated. We don't know that word, so they took it out. There's three words that Paul is using here to describe God's salvation. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now, Let's talk about what each one of these means. We'll start with justification. Now, we know that this word, because we've been talking about it a lot, comes from the courtroom and has to do with our legal declaration um, uh, before God. But let me also begin by saying what justification does not mean. Justification is not the same as a pardon. God is not pardoning the sinners. Now, we understand the term of pardon because if a, if a governor or a president pardons somebody who's guilty of a crime, they are just not charged with that crime. But that's not what we're talking about in justification. There's forgiveness in both cases, and there is the sense in which we're being tar pardoned. But when we talk about justification, we are not talking about a pardon. We are not talking about forgiveness. We are talking about an act of God by which he judicially declares someone to be righteous in his sight. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because we're not righteous in any shape or form. See, the gospel is not the announcement of a pardon. In justification, God does not just uh, universally decide he's going to forgive sins. That's, of course, that's not the prevailing idea. The prevailing idea is that uh, God just loves us so much that he's willing to just overlook our sins. He's such a loving, dear, friendly, kind, heavenly father that he's, he's just going to overlook our sin. And that when we sin, it doesn't really bother God a great deal that we have violated our covenant with him and violated everything that's holy. It doesn't bother God that much about it. So he's just going to get over it and say, 
Ah, never mind. God never negotiates his righteousness. God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. God demands, he requires that sin be punished. It has to be dealt with for God to be holy. God does remain just. He just doesn't set aside his justice. He doesn't just waive his righteousness. He absolutely insists on it. You can't be justified without righteousness, and yet the righteousness that we need has to be that extra nos, that alien righteousness, that righteousness that only God himself can provide. And so God himself provides us with a substitute. When we talk about substitutionary atonement, we're talking about having someone else pay the price to make us right with God, at one with God. God himself provides the means of his righteousness through someone else. Now, the second term here um, for redemption or ransom is allopolotrosis, and it means either redemption or ransom in English. They're, they're interchangeable terms here. And both imply that there is a price that is paid to obtain the release of a captive. We don't do that so much in our culture now unless it's a, like at a pawn shop. But, you know, let's take us back to medieval days where where a general is captured in a battle, and the, the, the winning king would have this general held hostage. The losing king could pay to have the general released. He could pay a ransom to release him from, from prison. Or a commoner might purchase a slave for the purpose of setting that slave free. So he's redeeming or ransoming, same word here, he's redeeming the slave through a purchase price. In, in this case here, we, we get the, the concept, but we understand that Jesus is the one who was given as a ransom. In Matthew 20, 10, Jesus himself said he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter explains it is not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish. So a, a sacrifice is made, a ransom is paid, um, so that Jesus himself provides the release of the captivity. And of course, the captivity we're talking about is our captivity to sin. We are, we are held as slaves to sin, and Christ, through his blood, frees us, redeems us, ransoms us from that condition. Okay, so we get the first two concepts pretty easily. We understand justification from the courtroom language. We understand redemption or ransom from pawn stars or uh, ransoming a slave. This next term, however, is, is complicated for us, and because it is, I think few people not only know what it means, but have learned to love and embrace the concept of propitiation. Now, the word propitiation comes from the language of ancient religions. The idea that there's a god, a deity, not necessarily the god, uh, your idol, a deity who is wrathful, and you have to do something to turn aside his anger towards you. You want to, to perform some service or give him some gift, some act that you can do to turn aside the wrath of this angry deity. His, his anger needs to be appeased or, or turned away. Now, because this comes from the idea of ancient religion, we, we are at first 
tolerant of the idea, but we would have to say, that's from an ancient people who didn't know the real God, who understood gods of, of, of idolatry, and because of that, um, they, they had this view of God as being capricious, uh, unnecessarily wrathful, and he needed to be, a, 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 he needed to be appeased somehow. And so, but that's not the God of today. We've, we've come so far, we, there's no idol worship, and we're not worshiping tiki doll gods like that. And so we tend to say that's ancient news. Beyond that, however, I think we have a theological objection to the idea that we have a God whose wrath needs to be turned away because our basic concept is that God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of, of compassion. And we don't like the idea that there is a God who has wrath. We don't like the idea that this wrath of God is aimed towards us and somehow needs to be appeased. And beyond that, we might say that, you know, we, we don't have a, a, a God like, like a pagans worship who is capricious and vacillating and often angry and moody. You know, that's not what God is like. Our God is, is a God of love. He's, he's not angry. He's a God of love. He doesn't need to be appeased. You know, all he wants us to do is just to, for us to recognize that he's a God of immense love and to receive his forgiveness. That's the message of modern-day Christianity. God is a God of love, and all he wants from you is to recognize that he offers you forgiveness. And that's, that's it. That's, that's the whole message of modern Christianity. But if anything is clear in our study through Romans for the last two and a half chapter, it is the fact that we have a problem as human beings because we are objects of the wrath of God and that God's wrath rests upon us. That's the problem that we have. We have God's wrath resting upon us because of our sin, and therefore we are lost because of that. Now let me ask you a question. Exactly what is it that you need to be saved from? It's the wrath of God. Oh, no, no, God's a God of love. He just doesn't want anybody to, to go to hell. Well, how do you think you end up in hell? except that God, a righteous judge, puts you there because you're the object of his wrath. Oh, no, God's just trying to save you from hell. He's doing everything he can to keep you from that. Well, it's true that God does not take delight in judging someone, but it is also true there will be people in hell, and the way they got there was when they stood before God's bench and he condemned them to hell. That is not, by the way, an eternity without God. People will say, if you don't choose God now, you will suffer an eternity in a godless condition. No, hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the eternal presence of the wrath of God. You need to be saved from God. In these pagan rituals and sacrifice, people are trying to pl placate their God. But in Christianity, it is never the human being who takes the initiative to satisfy, to propitiate an angry God. It is the action that God has taken. God himself 
has provided this way. Why? Because of his great love for sinners and his great desire to bestow grace and mercy and compassion upon them. And that God will take action to avert his wrath by justly punishing his own son in our behalf. John Stott points out this was already clear in the Old Testament in which sacrifices were recognized not as human works but as divine gifts. Speaking of these sacrifices, they did not make God gracious. They were provided by a gracious God in order that he might act graciously towards his sinful people. Leviticus 17, I have given it to you, speaking again of the sacrifice, the blood, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Now, we've covered this before, so I'll try to be brief. When God told Moses to build the tabernacle, this was a temporary housing. This was a, a place of worship in which to house the most sacred object which represent his presence among the people. The tabernacle was a covering, a, a home uh, environment in which the Ark of the Covenant was to be placed. The Ark of the Covenant is a is a wooden box covered with gold about three feet long and about two and a half feet tall. And on the top of that, there was a lid, which was called the mercy seat. By the way, the word propitiation and mercy seat are the same word. On the lid of the mercy seat were two cherub, two angels facing each other with their wings going up and, and, and almost, almost touching at the top. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two stone tablets of the, of the covenant, the agreement, the uh, contract that God made with man. As God sits on this seat between the cherub and he looks down upon the covenant, we have a problem. Because as he looks down upon the covenant, he sees a covenant that each of us has broken, that all mankind has broken, and we stand rightly convicted of being covenant breakers, which is why once a year the high priest would offer an animal sacrifice for himself and his family to make sure he was forgiven, he was pure, and they would offer a second animal. And they would bring the blood of that second animal in, and there was a very prescribed way that he could do this, lest he offend a God and offend God and be struck down because of his casualness about this, he would bring the blood of that offering representing the, the, the sins of his people. He would bring that into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on the top of the mercy seat so that as God, seated between the cherubs, the, the, the angels, looks down upon the broken covenant he does so looking through the blood of the sacrificed innocent victim. And we say, well, the, certainly the, the blood of animals does not take away sin from Hebrews chapter 10. Yes, that's true, but it looked forward to the, the perfect sacrifice which does satisfy God. He looks now through the blood of Jesus, his own son, who lived in perfect obedience. He looks through his blood at the broken covenant, and he sees compassion. He sees his wrath satisfied. 
propitiated. You see why this is such a beautiful word? We shouldn't just erase it from our Christian language because we, it's complicated or we don't know what it is. It's a beautiful picture here. The ark represents this symbol of terrible judgment because of our violation of what God requires, but it also is topped with the mercy seat, which represents God being satisfied because the blood of Christ has been spilled in our behalf. And so now God does not ignore the sin. He punishes the sin. He's fully satisfied. The sin has been adequately dealt with. The, the consequence, the, the, the uh, what do you call it when you give a sentence? The sentence has been given, and he's satisfied with the, the, the price. And so that's the propitiation uh, the mercy seat that God has, has been satisfied through. And how do we get that? How does that become ours? How do we own this forgiveness, this propitiation? It comes through us through faith. Verse 25. <clears throat> this was to show, <clears throat> excuse me, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so the means through which we obtain this propitiation, we are told, is through faith. That's how it becomes ours. That's the channel through which justification becomes ours. But what is faith? Is faith some inner quality that we have to muster out? Is it, is it uh, some action that we have to do? Is it some meritorious work that we have performed? And I've often heard that God has done everything he can to save you, and he's offering you the gift of salvation, and you must reach out and receive that, and it is that reaching out and receiving that which makes you saved. If that were the case, the reaching out and receiving that would be a meritorious work. It would be an action that you performed. So it can't be that. Faith is not a work at all. It's certainly not a good work. But don't misunderstand me. It is necessary. It is absolutely essential, um, but it is not a work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved um, through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So whatever faith is, it's not an action. It's not a work. It's not something you can produce or that you need to be praised for. Well, at least I had the good sense to accept the free gift. If that were the case, we'd all be going around in heaven. I'm so glad I have a better case than Terry Johnson because I made it to heaven. You know, sorry, Terry Johnson. <laughs> So what is it? Phil Newton says, faith is an acknowledging and assenting to the truth in Christ. Saving faith is never faith in faith. It's never turned inward. Faith looks outside oneself to the only refuge for sinners, Jesus Christ. Faith relies on the biblical revelation of Christ as the Son of God and Son of Man, absolute deity and absolute humanity in one person, perfect in righteousness, crucified as the sin-bearer, satisfying divine justice through the one death, raised from the dead in demonstration of God's acceptance of his redemptive sacrifice, exalted to the right hand of the Father where he reigns forever as Lord and returning as judge of the living and of the dead at the consummation of the ages. Well, that's quite a mouthful. I like what Spurgeon says better. Faith is believing that Christ is what he said to be 
and he will do what he has promised to do, and then expecting him to act that way. Faith is just believing. It's just accepting that what God said is true. It's, it's no more than no less than that. How can a holy God allow a sinful man into his presence? Because he accepts the sacrifice of his son in our place, because his wrath against our sin has been poured out upon Jesus, and so his wrath has been propitiated, because he now clothes us in the robes of his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God is then yet holy, and at the same time he is just. He is loving, and at the same time he is merciful. He's without compromises. He's both the just and the justifier. He's the just one because he does what is right. He does not wink at sin. He does not just simply give us a pass. The terrible price of our sin has been paid. So I hope now you can see why this passage before us is the very heart, not only of the book of Romans, but of the entire Bible. It has always been the heart of the Father. We are freely justified, declared righteous, not of our own merit or worth, but by the grace which was received to us through the cross. So finally, we get this long-needed and anticipated relief from Paul's relentless indictments, his dismal projection of God's just and terrible wrath against us. Now we've come to the turning point in Romans, this uh, good news that the righteousness that we so desperately need is now manifest to us through Jesus Christ. And if this is just now dawning on you, perhaps this is your turning point. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we, all we can do is stand in awe of the great love that you have, that you should pour out the wrath that we deserve upon your son Jesus. Not only to transfer our guilt and sin to him, but to transfer his righteousness to us. What an amazing thing. And the only fitting response is for us to worship you and thank you. And we do. Help us to worship you not just with our songs, but to worship you with our lives. And that our mouths might bear testimony of the amazing grace of God. His righteousness revealed through Jesus that is now ours through faith. Thank you, Lord. Now cause us to ruminate on these truths, cause us to grow and mature, cause us to be changed. By the work of the Holy Spirit within us, we pray. Amen.